ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, government MPs ordered back from holidays for a special meeting on the cost of living. Are the Stage 3 tax cuts about to be watered down? Also, it's been labelled the golden visa. Why a migration pathway for the wealthy has been closed off. And crooked detective Roger Rogerson is dead, but he's left an indelible mark on popular culture. Now, we're we back on board again. Are we going to do business? We're going to do business? Come on, how are your wounds? Hey, mate. So villains, in fact, make the story happen, and it's always them that trigger the action, and therefore we're, we're intrigued by them. Thanks for your company. Since the Albanese government came to power more than 18 months ago, one issue has remained dominant in the minds of voters, the cost of living. And after a shabby end to the political year for Labor, the Prime Minister is hoping for a 2024 reset by proving he is doing what he can to help the family budget. Exactly what will be discussed at a special meeting of the Labor caucus on Wednesday isn't known, but many are wondering whether the long-awaited, much-debated Stage 3 tax cuts could be in line for a trim. In a moment, we'll hear what that would mean for taxpayers and for inflation, but first, a temperature check, as one major bank reports consumer stress is now at the same level it was in the first few months of the pandemic. David Taylor begins our coverage. 54-year-old Kim Horn lives in Cessnock in the Hunter Valley region of New South Wales, working as a bookkeeper. Of the many items in her shopping basket, it's the price of dishwashing tablets that gets her blood boiling. But if it's not on sale, it's like $74 a packet. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Who can afford $74 a packet? But there's one bill that's always difficult to swallow. Uh, electricity um, is is ridiculous. So we've moved moved houses and... Um, I don't understand why that. I mean, I understand why it keeps going up, but I don't. I, I can't see an end of that have that happening. And I think that's stressful when you when the prices don't stabilise, but everything else is not moving with it. The National Australia Bank's latest check on consumer angst shows Kim is in good company. Its latest consumer stress index, covering the last few months of 2023, now sits at its highest level since the March quarter of 2020. NAB's Head of Behavioural Economics, Dean Pearson, produced the index. He told PM well over half of all survey respondents say they've cancelled or cut back on eating out at restaurants, and many are cutting back on entertainment, like going to the movies. And some are reducing the amount they use the car to save on petrol. And increasingly we're asking them, well, how much is that saving you per month? And those four things alone are saving about $300 a month. So if you, you know, translate that over a year, that's you know, $3,600 a year of continue. So they're very proactive in still in trying to manage those offsets. And we know that you know, they're using that money so that they can afford the things, their day-to-day living expenses, which are coming through because of the cost of living. Um, they're also looking to support their savings, but also, uh, you know, have some money to splurge. That's, you know, the Taylor Swift effect, the Swift anomic. But, of course, paying for anything relies on holding down a job. Because when we talk to people about, uh, consumers about, well, what is it that really worries you about your financial position? Um, it, it is the inability to have a buffer for an emergency. Now, that buffer 
it is a concern, but it's a real concern if you don't have a job. And that's the scent of uh, increasingly coming through now in all of our, our surveys. While Kim Horn and her husband bring in enough money now through their work, she intends to stay thrifty. We've learnt, we learnt the lesson of poverty pretty early in our married life. So I'm all, I've, you know, we've always been a bit careful about what, what we're buying and we try and go for quality as well. So I don't know, so we're not buying things, you know, like if I get a washing machine, I'll get a, a decent washing machine. I don't buy the cheapest washing machine around. So, so um, you've had the experience of having very little and, and you've learned some lessons from that. Absolutely. The concern is, of course, that if too many Australians cut back, the economy will falter, causing widespread job losses. David Taylor reporting there. So what is the government planning to ease the cost of living pain? Something on electricity bills, something on petrol? Or is the government preparing to shave back the long-promised Stage 3 tax cuts? And what would that mean for the cost of living crisis? Stephen Hamilton is a former Treasury official and now Assistant Professor of Economics at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. So it's important to first note that stage three tax cuts are the third stage in a series of tax cuts instituted by the former Morrison government. This is the the third stage. The first two stages went to lower income earners. The third stage tends to go to higher income earners. Uh, It's in three parts. The first part sees the 32% tax bracket which cuts in at 45,000, dropping from 32% to 30. So everyone above 45,000 gets a tax cut. Uh, the second part is that those earning between 120 and 180,000, who are currently in the 37% bracket, their marginal rate would drop from 37 to 30. And the third part is that those earning above 180,000 are currently in the top bracket of 47%. That threshold would be raised to 200,000. And so what that means is everyone from 45 and above gets some tax relief. The way tax rates work is that the first part goes to everyone earning more than 45. Then everyone earning more than 120 gets the first and second. And that everyone earning more than 180 gets the first and the second and the third. And that's why, in total, this tax package is kind of skewed towards the high end. Okay, so clearly those earning over $180,000 a year get the most benefit out of these three segments of the tax cuts. What would it mean for inflation if the government didn't proceed with that third section that you mentioned for those earning over $180,000 a year? Yeah, so in total, the the tax package is due to cost roughly $20 billion in its first year. So that's a significant amount of money. We shouldn't downplay it. It's it's a large amount of money. And and to pump $20 billion into the economy at a time where inflation is reasonably robust is, is obviously not ideal, right? So Obviously, if you scrap the package entirely, you save $20 billion. If you only scrap one part of it, you save a lot less, right? So the top part of that package that you mentioned, the, the relief going to 180 and above only, you know, that's much smaller. That's around $6 billion. And the second thing to note is that the people receiving that tax break, because they're higher earners, they tend to save more of their income. And so giving them a tax break has a much lower impact on consumption, on demand, than, say, giving tax relief to lower income earners, right? And moreover, if you redistribute that $6 billion to people earning less, while that is, you know, maybe a good idea, it's maybe fair, it's maybe, you know, more, more equal, you know, in terms of income, 
it would be inflationary because the people receiving that money uh, would tend to spend more of it rather than save it. So, so that may add to inflation if they do that, but surely it would be politically easier if you're going to shave something off the Sage 3 tax cuts to do it from the top end of town. Yeah, so I think this is the tricky tightrope the government is walking at the moment. I mean, the, the cost of living crisis that we've been in for really a long time now, you know, 18 months really this this has been running, it's very difficult to solve. There's no magic wand. If you want to reduce the pressure on people, that inevitably involves pumping money into the economy, that inevitably involves more demand, more inflationary pressure, higher interest rates. And so what you have to ask yourself as a government is, is that worth it, right? Is it worth protecting a small portion of the population, taking the pressure off them, and paying the cost of higher demand, higher inflation, and higher interest rates? You know, that's really the trade-off the government faces. It can change these tax cuts if it wants to. It can skew them more to lower income earners, but it, it sort of has to ask itself, is it worth the inflationary cost? So to conclude, can people expect some sort of tax cut on the 1st of July, whatever the government decides this week? Oh, look, I would be shocked if the government scrapped State 3 entirely and, and people who've been calling for that, I think it's not realistic and I've certainly not been calling for that. I think you have to ask yourself, if you have $20 billion to spend a year, that's a huge amount of money. What is the best way to spend it? What is the, the best way to spend it in the context of the inflationary crisis we face, in the context of wanting to improve productivity, in the context of wanting to help people who are most in need? And I think it's clear that the package designed, you know, five years or more ago, well before pandemic, well before this inflationary crisis, obviously is not the package you would design today if you had the choice. The, the question for the government is, are they willing to bear the political cost of kind of opening that Pandora box and, and, and starting to tinker. And I think that's the thing. We, we'll wait to see later this week what they decide. That's economist Stephen Hamilton from George Washington University there. Well, as the housing crisis worsens, a national coalition of homelessness and welfare groups is urging the federal government to reintroduce a plan to wind back negative gearing for property investors. Labor dropped the policy in 2021 after it was identified as a factor in two election defeats. But the Everybody's Home campaign believes the attitude of voters is changing as more people struggle to keep a roof over their heads. Samantha Donovan reports. Federal Labor MPs have been called back to Canberra two weeks ahead of schedule to discuss how to help Australians struggling to pay their bills. And what we'll be looking at, of course, is the advice that we've received about how we can take pressure off cost of living for people who are doing it tough without putting pressure on inflation. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, told Sky News he hasn't received that advice yet, but he believes the budget surplus gives the government options. It provides you with the scope to then provide additional assistance. One plan unlikely to be on the government's agenda this week is changes to tax concessions for property investors. In 2021, Labor dumped its policy to wind back negative gearing after two election losses. But Everybody's Home, a coalition of housing and welfare groups campaigning to fix the housing crisis, wants the policy revived. It's calling on the government to scrap negative gearing 
and the capital gains tax discount for property investors to help get more people into affordable housing. Mayor Zizi is the national spokesperson for Everybody's Home and the author of the campaign's new report, Written Off, in which she concludes tax breaks for property investors have fuelled the housing crisis. The tax concessions that we looked at were negative gearing deductions and the exemption to the capital gains tax. Those are the concessions that have really pushed up the cost of housing over the past couple of decades, and they're also costing the government an absolute fortune. Uh, our report finds that uh, Australia has lost a quarter of a trillion dollars to these uh, tax concessions over the past couple of decades. So what are you calling on the federal government to do? Between the 50s and the 80s, the government was really supplying more housing. That's why housing was affordable. So what we need the government to do is actually step back into that role and start supplying and distributing housing again. We are calling on them to uh, build a million uh, social homes over the next two decades, and our report finds that uh, the money that we would forego from these tax concessions over the past uh, over the next 10 years would actually fund the construction of half a million homes. But given Labor's lack of success at elections with a policy to wind back negative gearing, isn't your call for this just going to be in vain? We've got 43,000 supporters in this campaign and we hear all the time from people who've benefited from some of these concessions themselves. And what they tell us is they're really alarmed when they look around their communities and see how much uh, less affordable housing has become uh, for their communities. And many of them are actually really worried about their children. It is a really false saving for a lot of these people to be, you know, getting tens of thousands of dollars uh, in in benefits every single year only to then have to turn around and give them to their children um, so that they can actually afford a deposit. It, um, it's, it doesn't make any sense and people are really starting to see that. So is there any chance the worsening housing shortage could see the Labor government reintroduce plans to wind back negative gearing and other tax concessions for property investors? Cos Samaras is a director of the Redbridge Group and a former campaign director for the Labor Party in Victoria. He says it's not impossible. I think the electorally... Uh, safe approach would be to grandfather a change. So in other words, if you uh, remove negative gearing that is for properties purchased after a certain date, that's one solution. Another solution is you only apply to people who own more than one property in addition to the home they live in. That will then really limit the opposition to a policy change of this nature because the vast majority of uh, properties that are owned in this country at the moment, uh, I think I think close to 70% um, they are owned by an individual owns one additional property. That will remove the incentive for people to use to, to view property in some way uh, as, a, as a, an investment going forward and, fi- and a solution that could probably fix our housing crisis over a longer period of time. That's former Labor strategist Cos Samaras from the Redbridge Group. Samantha Donovan, our reporter. You're listening to PM. I'm David Lipson. You can hear all of our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. He was crooked, charming, and when it suited his needs, capable of appalling violence. Corrupt detective and convicted murderer Roger Rogerson died in Sydney overnight, but not before he found a place in the popular culture of a nation mesmerised by his story. There were books, speaking engagements, story after story in the media, and one famous TV miniseries. Roger Rogerson's life is yet another example that leads to the question, why are we so fascinated with such horrible criminals? Isabel Masali prepared this report. 
After nine months inside, the gates of Long Bay Jail opened for Australia's best-known former detective. Today, Roger Caleb Rogerson became once again a free and innocent man. It was absolute relief. It was relief for both of us to, uh, to know that finally justice had been done and, uh, and we are now released. In 1990, yet another declaration of innocence, but Roger Rogerson was far from it. One of the most evil, corrupt police that this country has ever seen. Mark Morrie is the crime editor of Sydney's Daily Telegraph newspaper. He describes the convicted killer and corrupt police officer as a complicated character whose charisma covered the evil lying beneath. He recalls one story involving Sydney woman Lynn Woodward. Now, Lynn, in 1981, was about to talk about Rogerson's corruption at, at the inquest into that shooting of Warren Lanfranchi. She walked out of the courtroom, the back of the courtroom was never seen again. Very, very good sources in the New South Wales police said that Nettie and Roger grabbed her and then shot her and killed her and disposed of her body, which has never been found. Now, when you hear those stories, this is not a man that just shot dead other criminals. He would shoot anyone that got into his way. Joining the New South Wales police force in 1958, he was soon seen as an up-and-coming detective and won many accolades but he was later exposed for corruption, fraud and violence. He also left his mark on Australian pop culture. There were books about him, speaking engagements and countless newspaper headlines. But his infamy was sealed with the 1995 TV miniseries Blue Murder. I've gained a reputation for being able to talk to criminals. Some of these hardened criminals, dangerous criminals even. Sue Turnbull is a senior professor of communications and media at the University of Wollongong. She studies pop culture and crime. It was phenomenally successful. This was 1995 and uh, it was nominated for a whole series of awards. It followed Rogerson's career up to that point and it really, in a sense, lifted the lid on the degree of corruption that there was and really brought home to people particularly in Sydney, what was actually going on. For legal reasons, the series was initially banned from New South Wales, but that didn't stop its popularity. I think there was a fascination with the man because he was present. But he was played by Richard Roxburgh, who I think managed quite likely to capture the Rogerson, who was also the... Um, the, the kind of guy that you would want to have a beer with because he would have the best stories and apparently he was a very complex character. He could be very kind, could be very entertaining. And I think having Roxburgh play him brought out that side so that people could go, well, wow, what a complicated character, but he was a bad man. The thought of getting a bullet never entered my head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this filthy weasel, this filthy weasel had a gun. And I had to stop him before he endangered the lives of my fellow police officers and the public at large. <laughs> it was the coming together of a dark chapter in Sydney's history and a growing thirst for content. Professor Turnbull says in the 1980s, the production of TV miniseries took off in Australia, with many portraying local history proving popular. So, while Australia was considered late to the game in TV crime, it caught on quickly. Blue Murders came at a particular moment in 95 when there was this interest in true stories about crime, which of course reached a whole other dimension with Underbelly in 2008, which went on to have 
six series and one mini series as as recent as 2022. So why are audiences attracted to dark characters and criminals in the first place? Well, you know, villains are interesting in the sense that if everybody was good, nothing would happen. So villains, in fact, make the story happen. And it's always them that trigger the action and therefore we're, we're intrigued by them, particularly when they are complicated characters and we get to see other sides to them because there is also that moral dimension that we're interested in. What made them go to the bad? Are they all bad? What, what created them? Why do people do these things? As for how the real Roger Rogerson will be remembered, former detective and author Duncan McNabb puts it bluntly. The man who could have been great the man who turned out to be nothing more than an appalling, greedy, murderous bastard. There are some people who will miss him, some people who will mourn him, obviously. But publicly, I think he'll be known for what um, just a notorious evil bugger that he really was. That's former detective Duncan McNabb ending that report by Isabel Masali and David Sparks. Well, if you have the money, it's actually been pretty easy to get permanent residency in Australia in recent years. All it's taken is $5 million worth of investment in Australia. There's no age limit and you're not required to meet any language requirements. But the federal government is pausing the business visa program that puts wealthy applicants on the easy path to citizenship. Angus Randall reports. It's a program that takes up a quarter of Australia's migration spots, and most of us could never afford it. The Business Innovation and Investment Program asks foreign business owners to invest large sums of money into Australia. One strand, called the Significant Investor Visa, requires an outlay of $5 million. But in return, applicants get permanent residency and are on the easy path to full citizenship. Carla Wilshire is the CEO of the Migration Council Australia. The original intention behind the idea of a significant investor visa is that if you could get high net wealth individuals to invest within your particular country and and in particular if they were able to open up small or private companies or to invest in startups, that that in turn would generate some form of um, uh, innovation, would stimulate new new types of industries and projects. So that was the intention behind them. However, that isn't necessarily how they've unfolded in practice. Instead of sparking an Australian Silicon Valley, most applicants invest their money into small-scale hospitality businesses. What significant investor visas have done is just enabled high net worth individuals from particular countries. Um, In Australia, it's predominantly Chinese investors to park money in Australia. So isn't necessarily contributing to growing employment or to growing the economy quite the way in which it was envisaged. The federal government has paused the entire business innovation and investment program. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says the migration system is broken and reform is underway. Brendan Coates is the Economic Policy Program Director at the Grattan Institute. He wants to see this part of the migration program scrapped entirely. This is the single worst part of the entire permanent skilled migration program. Whereas most parts of our skilled program select younger, skilled workers that make a big contribution to Australia. This program selects older, less skilled workers, often with poor English, who end up costing Australian taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars more in services and supports 
then they pay in tax over their working lives. One of the visas that was available under this program was the significant investor visa. Invest $5 million into Australia and you're in. But the majority of applicants don't need that kind of cash. They're coming to Australia to buy a business on an innovation visa, and these businesses can be pretty much anything. You know, you've only got to own a business that's got annual turnover of at least $750,000. You've got to have net wealth of at least $1.25 million. That's not a particularly high number, and they tend to be often the family members of people who are already in Australia who essentially help pay to set up the business or to buy the business that qualifies them for the visa. The program is no longer accepting new applications, but that leaves around 30,000 applicants in limbo. Most applicants will go through a private immigration services provider. One of the biggest is Fragerman. Theresa Liu is the managing partner for Fragerman in Australia and New Zealand. Investment into a country has always been a feature of you know, almost all immigration programs. So the US, UK, Canada have all got similar programs. A lot of them have been under review as well. So it's, you know, it, it is a balance of ensuring that you know, we still have investment into the country. I think it, it does make a difference in terms of enabling businesses to grow and thrive. I think it's right that it is under review uh, just to ensure that all those checks and balances are being made. In December, the federal government released a 10-year migration strategy which plans to reduce levels of migration. Angus Randall reporting there. In the coming hours, the Israeli and Palestinian foreign ministers will meet with EU leaders in Brussels as Europe's governing body seeks a pathway towards some form of lasting peace in the Middle East. That seems a distant prospect for now, as the number of Palestinian deaths tops 25,000, according to the Hamas-run health ministry, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu doubles down on his rejection of a future Palestinian state. Amber Jacobs reports. At Al Nasser Hospital in the Gaza Strip, injured children are rushed into the emergency room. It follows an Israeli airstrike on the southern city of Khan Yunus. Recently, Israeli ground operations have focused on the southern city, as well as built-up refugee camps to the north in central Gaza. And as the death toll rises, there's little sign the war will end any time soon. In a position that blatantly goes against that of longtime ally, the United States, Benjamin Netanyahu is refusing to budge. He's repeated his position. There's no space for a Palestinian state. As Prime Minister of Israel, I firmly stood by this position in the face of great international and internal pressures. My insistence is what prevented for years the establishment of a Palestinian state which would have posed an existential danger to Israel. As long as I am Prime Minister, I will continue to firmly stand by it. Mr Netanyahu insists a Palestinian state would pose existential danger to Israel. But the issue of a post-war state is likely to dominate discussions in Brussels later tonight. Leaders from the European Union are set to first meet with Israel's Foreign Minister Israel Katz before meeting with the Palestinian Authority's top diplomat Riyad al-Maliki. The Palestinian Authority is separate to Hamas, which runs Gaza.
And ahead of the talks, the EU's diplomatic service has issued a paper with a possible roadmap to peace. The internal document has been seen by news organisations, including Reuters. A key goal is the creation of a Palestinian state living side by side with Israel in peace and security. But does the European Union have enough influence to change the course of the war? Charles Miller is an expert in international relations at the Australian National University. He says the EU is unlikely to change Mr Netanyahu's position. I really can't see how it's going to be brought about because although the external actors like the European Union and the United States um, say that that's what they want, um, when push comes to shove, they don't really um, put serious pressure on any of the actors, certainly not on Israel, um, to actually bring it about. He says despite important trade relations between the European Union and Israel, the bloc's influence over the region is limited. So the um, European Union is Israel's largest um, largest trading partner, just edging out the United States, um, whereas um, Israel contributes a relatively small um, share of the EU's overall exports. Now, normally, the larger actor would have an awful lot of power over the smaller actor. But in this case, that's not really what happens. Um, and the reason being really that the European Union is very divided. He says more powerful EU states like Germany are strong supporters of Israel, while the likes of Ireland is more sympathetic to the the Palestinians. It makes any consensus difficult to achieve. So I think really that the, it's very unlikely to imagine that Germany would have to taking really kind of um, tough coercive measures against Israel, like, for example, trade sanctions. Um, I just really don't think that that's something that, that a, German, a modern German government would ever really contemplate. Mr Netanyahu is facing growing pressure, both internally and internationally. Despite this, he's vowed he won't stop until Hamas is annihilated, a goal Mr Miller says is unrealistic. Many Israeli um, intelligence officials themselves would say that it's not a realistic goal either. It would be very, very difficult for um, the Israelis to wipe um, Hamas out. Charles Miller there from the Australian National University, ending that report by Amber Jacobs. Thanks for joining us here on PM. I'm David Lipson. It's been great to be back on your radio from holidays. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, good night.